Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While on the Martian moon of Phobos, a military experiment has opened a door leading straight into hell. A squad of Marines is sent to investigate, and you are one of those Marines. After a horrific surprise attack, you find yourself fighting through a horde of demons. Armed with a shotgun, a chainsaw, and a few grenades, you enter a dark corridor. Growls and hisses come from the shadows. Then a pink-skinned beast with horns and glowing red eyes lunges at you. Adrenaline pumping, you fire your shotgun, spraying blood and guts everywhere. You run toward a door at the end of the corridor, hoping to find some ammo and health packs. But instead, when you open the door, you see a giant cyber demon, half machine, half monster, with a rocket launcher for an arm. You start to sweat as you realize you're in big trouble. And this is a video game like you've never played before. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the introduction of a new way of gaming, which captivated players and caused moral panic for politicians and parents. This is The Rise of Video Game Violence. To understand how the 90s gave us games like Doom and Mortal Kombat, I need to take you back to the late 1980s, when a group of young programmers were writing games for Softdisk, a Louisiana mail-order company that shipped out magazines on floppy disks. After hours, they also worked together on a platform game for MS-DOS called Commander Keen, which incorporated a revolutionary new scrolling technique for PCs developed by John Carmack, one of the four programmers. Commander Keen was a hit, bringing console-like action to computer games in a big way. The success allowed the guys to quit their day job at Softdisk and move to Texas, where in February 1991, they formed id Software. From its formation, the company focused on the development of superior graphics for PC games, confident that personal computers could rival video consoles. In May 1992, id released Wolfenstein 3D for DOS, which was based on a game called Castle Wolfenstein, released in 1981 for the Apple II computer. But this new Wolfenstein was very different for a couple of reasons. First of all, you could play it for free. Wolfenstein 3D was published by Apogee using the revolutionary PC software called Shareware. Invented in the 80s, Shareware was distributed online through local bulletin board services and let users get basic products for free. In the case of Wolfenstein 3D, users got the first mission with 10 levels of play for no charge. But if they wanted to keep playing, and most people did, they had to pay a fee to get the complete series of six missions. It was a brilliant strategy, sort of the precursor to the in-app purchases that we're used to today. 
And because Wolfenstein was so good, it proved to skeptical gamers that shareware was definitely not a second-class product. And that brings me to the next reason Wolfenstein was a game changer. The plot of the game is familiar. An American commando behind enemy lines in World War II Germany, constantly confronting Nazis and trying to bring down the Third Reich. But it's how the game is played that sets it apart. Using a graphics engine designed by John Carmack, Wolfenstein 3D is all played in a three-dimensional mode, with the user seeing everything through the eyes of the main character, something we've come to know today as a first-person shooter game, or FPS. First-person shooter games had actually existed before Wolfenstein 3D. There was Maze War in 1973, which was developed by students in a NASA study program, then in the 80s, Atari introduced Battlezone, a tank combat arcade game, and in 1987, Midi Maze was released for the Atari ST. But Wolfenstein set a new standard for first-person shooter games. It was faster, cooler, and technically impressive. And with the aid of a Sound Blaster Pro sound card, the sound effects were equally amazing. And even though Wolfenstein might sound and look a bit cartoony today, at the time of its release in 1992, the game was also considered incredibly gory and violent, and players loved it. As Wolfenstein 3D was growing in popularity for PC gamers, there was another new violent game taking over arcades. By the early 90s, arcade video games that ruled in the 80s, like Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Donkey Kong, were being replaced with fighting games, including the hugely popular Capcom game Street Fighter II. To keep up with the trend, Midway Games unveiled Mortal Kombat, a new game that lived up to its slogan, So Real It Hurts. There's one guy on the left, and there's one guy on the right, and you're one of those two guys, and you're trying to beat the, beat the bejesus out of the other guy on the screen in front of you. That's Elise Noor, professor, podcaster, and video game journalist. She says what made Mortal Kombat so popular and so controversial at the same time was its fatalities. At the very end of the game, when you had already kind of killed your opponent and, and the, the match had already been decided, you got to um, have a certain window of time in which you could execute a button combination and you would see this animation of your character finishing off the opponent character. The winning player hears this. Or maybe this. Then the player enters the button combination and an incredibly shocking violent animation appears on the screen. We're talking about decapitation. We're talking about impaling someone on spikes, ripping someone's heart out of their chest, um, lighting them on fire. The, 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 the most shocking one for me is um, ripping someone's head off with their spinal cord still attached. And all of this, and, and like they're, they're screaming, they're, their head, their decapitated head is screaming. Mortal Kombat brought fighting games to the next level with more sophisticated graphics, swapping the cartoonish characters on Street Fighter II for digitized models of real actors who sprayed blood and got torn to bits during the iconic fatality sequences. Players who can either fight the machine or each other select from one of 12 alien fighters with names like Raiden and Liu Kang. Each one has an individual supernatural move that ranges from firing a lightning bolt to being able to disappear. All have the goal of beating Goro, 
a 2,000-year-old four-armed half-human half-dragon who lost his last fight 500 years ago. I mean, the premise is pretty basic, but Elise Noor says that's not uncommon in these types of games. Mortal Kombat, in a lot of ways, embodies what um, one of the Doom creators said about first-person shooters, which is that they're like porn. They don't need any kind of plot or storyline. It's the same with Mortal Kombat in a lot of ways. I'm like, what is the premise of Mortal Kombat? You're just beating guys up. After its release in October 1992, Mortal Kombat quickly became the most popular arcade game in North America. It wasn't uncommon for cheering teens to crowd around Mortal Kombat machines in arcades to watch a player decimate an opponent, encouraging them to rip their head off. On a Friday or Saturday night, if you wanted to play the fighting game, you might wait half an hour in lines five people deep. To get good enough to win a fight, you had to put in the hours, and it took a lot of quarters. But once you mastered Mortal Kombat, you might be able to make a quarter last for hours. At least that was the dream. Within months of its release, there were already concerns, though, that it might be a little too realistic. Psychologists worried Mortal Kombat and other games like it reinforced violence in our culture. And they said these types of video games might also cause kids to be more aggressive and violent, especially if they're dealing with other negative factors like poverty. Regardless, Mortal Kombat remained the hottest arcade game in North America. And that did not go unnoticed by Nintendo and Sega which were engaged in a battle for supremacy in the home video console market. The console wars kicked into high gear in June 1991, when Sega introduced Sonic the Hedgehog for the Genesis console. As Sonic Mania swept the nation, Nintendo introduced its new 16-bit console, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And over the next couple of years, both companies engaged in massive marketing campaigns as they went head-to-head -head Nintendo versus Sega. Nintendo was still winning the video game war by far, but for the first time, there was a legitimate shift in the marketplace. Sega was gaining momentum. And by September 1993, the company pulled a power move in an effort to finish off Nintendo. In a day that has gone down in history as Mortal Monday, game publisher Acclaim Entertainment released versions of Mortal Kombat for the Super NES and Game Boy, as well as the Sega Genesis and Game Gear. It was the largest single-day multi-format release of a video game ever. And it was one of the most anticipated. Leading up to the release date on September 13, 1993, Acclaim spent $10 million on a glitzy marketing campaign that included giveaways and print ads, as well as high-energy trailers in 1,600 movie theaters and primetime television commercials like this one. Even though Mortal Kombat was available on both Nintendo and Sega, it didn't mean there was an even playing field. Back in 1986, Nintendo had committed to strict limits on nudity, profanity, sexual violence, and graphic illustrations of death. Elise Noor says the Japanese company was committed to being known as a family-friendly brand. So keeping with that brand, when they released the game for their Super Nintendo Entertainment System, they turned all the red blood into gray sweat or green ooze, um, and they got rid of a lot of the really gory um, animations and graphics, and they also got rid of the fatalities. 
Sega, on the other hand, allowed players to have the full uncensored version of Mortal Kombat by entering a cheat code. A cheat code that everyone knew about and that they, they did not make a secret at all. So because their version included all of those really gory animations, their version actually outsold Nintendo's by a factor of five. Problem is that because they quote unquote hid these animations behind their cheat code, they only rated the game MA13 using their own internal rating system. So it was a nightmare and they were marketing the game to young children. I mean, that, there's no joke about that. News coverage of Mortal Monday included warnings for parents about the game's content, along with tips on how to manage your kids' exposure to video games in general. Stuff like limit playing time and provide guidance when picking out new games. But Acclaim, Mortal Kombat's publisher, dismissed concerns about the fighter game, citing studies that suggest martial arts games are actually good for kids because it helps them get out their aggressions. Plus, they said, children aren't dumb. They know the difference between reality and fantasy. Over the next couple of months, as many as 3 million copies of Mortal Kombat flew off the shelves in stores around North America. And as Elise mentioned, Sega's version, with all that gory violence, outsold Nintendo 5 to 1. The decision to release the game uncensored was a brilliant move by Sega. And it provided some short-lived momentum in their war with Nintendo. Then, in December 1993, both companies became the target of an attack by Washington politicians. On December 1, 1993, Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman invited reporters to a news conference in Washington. The subject? Video game violence. Today, we're here to talk about the nightmare before Christmas. Not the movie, but unfortunately, the violent video games. These violent video games may actually become the Cabbage Patch dolls of the 1993 holiday season, and that would be too bad. Cabbage Patch dolls never oozed blood, and kids weren't taught to rip off their heads or tear out their hearts and spinal cords. But that is exactly the kind of gory violence that is found in some of the games that are on the market right now. One of Lieberman's staffers had shown him Mortal Kombat after his son asked if he could buy the game. Lieberman was shocked, and he was convinced few parents would buy violent video games for their kids if they knew what was in them. So the Connecticut senator decided to show members of the press gallery what was being sold to children around the country. He played for the reporters segments of two games, Mortal Kombat and Night Trap. Elise Knorr said Night Trap, which was meant for adults, not kids, was released in October 1992 for the Sega CD console. But it had a really horrific um, animation or, or I guess cutscene, video cutscene that would play if you didn't kill enough vampires. Um, they would show a, a very scary, I might add to this day, I find a very scary scene of a bunch of vampires uh, sneaking into a sorority girl's bathroom and sort of um, taking her away and, and like putting this device on her neck and torturing her and taking her away and killing her while she screams. Flanked by children's advocates, including Bob Keeshan, better known as Captain Kangaroo, Lieberman announced that he and fellow Democratic Senator Herb Cole had sponsored legislation calling on the video game industry to come up with a game rating system within one year. In the meantime, a Senate subcommittee chaired by Lieberman would hold hearings on the issue. The growing concern over violence in video games didn't happen in a vacuum. It occurred at a time when the public was becoming more alarmed about violence in the U.S. 
Six days after Joe Lieberman's news conference, a man gunned down commuters on a Long Island subway train. Six people were killed and 19 others injured by Colin Ferguson, who, according to one media report, acted as if he were playing a video game. As a result of soaring crime rates, more and more attention was being paid to the depiction of violence, as well as the degradation of women in music, movies, and TV shows. Popular radio stations in New York and Los Angeles were announcing decisions to restrict what they played on the air. Gangster rap in particular had become a sore spot, with major labels being asked to dump certain performers. And U.S. President Bill Clinton had called on Hollywood to help end violence in America by closely monitoring what it creates for television and movie screens. As video games became more sophisticated thanks to 16-bit consoles with much higher resolution, they became another easy target for people looking for ways to fix the violence that ailed the country. The biggest outcry about these games came from people who weren't playing them. That's really, really key. If you watch these scenes out of context, they feel a lot scarier and weirder and more gratuitous than when you're playing them. When you're playing them, it feels kind of campy and silly. And you're like, oh yeah, I beat Johnny Cage, so now I get to rip his heart out of his chest. Like, it somehow feels less bad. Shortly before the Senate hearings got underway on December 9th, 1993, the video game industry responded to Lieberman's request for a rating system. A coalition of 140 video game manufacturers and distributors promised it would work together to put ratings on their products. But senators at the subcommittee hearings were skeptical. Democrat Herb Cole warned industry witnesses called to testify that if they didn't do something about violence in video games, the government would. And despite going into the hearings somewhat united on the idea of a rating system, Sega and Nintendo ended up getting into a head-to-head battle in front of everyone. When Lieberman held up a blue plastic handgun used to operate a Sega game, Sega Vice President Bill White pulled out a bazooka-like rocket launcher used in a Nintendo game. Nintendo Vice President Howard Lincoln jumped in and said the bazooka was used for target shooting, which drew mocking laughter from Sega executives. The Nintendo VP counterattacked with comments about Sega's lax standards about violence. For anyone watching the hearings on TV, it was pretty entertaining. I don't know about you, but when I watch them, it looks to me like two naughty school children, Nintendo and Sega, being brought before their parents. And both of them are just like, he started it. No, he started it. He's worse than me. He's the naughty boy. And then finally, Joe Lieberman and Herb Cole, these Democratic senators, are just like, we don't care. Just fix this. Figure it out. If you guys don't figure this out, we will impose our own government regulation and rating system. So Nintendo, Sega, and the rest of the industry insiders who had committed to coming up with a rating system went away from the hearings to begin work on a framework that would satisfy everyone. In the meantime, Toys R Us announced it would stop selling Night Trap, but would continue to stock both versions of Mortal Kombat in its 581 stores across the U.S. And lots of kids and teens must have found a copy of Mortal Kombat under the Christmas tree that year because it became the world's best-selling video game in 1993. With so much attention on violent fighting games like Mortal Kombat, another equally gory and popular game was released under the radar and set a new standard for first-person shooter games. On December 10, 1993, the day after the Senate hearings on violent video games, The company that released Wolfenstein 3D 18 months earlier in May 1992 dropped a new game that transformed first-person shooter games forever. 
After the success of Wolfenstein, which sold 200,000 copies, the guys at id Software set to work making a new game, and this one would be faster, bloodier, and scarier. Initially, they wanted to create a game based on the 1986 movie Aliens. But when they failed to get the license, they revised the concept and came up with a game that pitted technology versus demons. They called it Doom. Doom features a space marine who's dropped into endless combat with a horde of terrifying enemies. And like Wolfenstein, players see everything through the eyes of the protagonist. There's something extremely visceral about Doom because you are facing these, these demon monsters. They're, they look very satanic, they're very terrifying, and you're, you're kind of wandering around these scary dungeon settings. Each demon monster has its own unique attacks and behaviors. And not only do they interact with the player, but also with each other. I mean, when you shoot a monster in Doom, it explodes, right? Like, and it's just blood, you know, spurting everywhere and gore uh, spurting everywhere. It's a very, like, red palette. It's very, it's very scary and terrifying, but, but really just the, the animations that happened once you shot these monsters um, was like nothing anyone had ever seen, except for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Surprisingly, though, Doom initially didn't attract the same kind of negative attention that Mortal Kombat was getting. Instead, early media coverage about the new game focused on the problems it was causing on college computer networks. On the day Doom was released, universities like Carnegie Mellon reported computer networks slowed to a crawl as eager students downloaded the groundbreaking new game, which they could play remotely with up to three other users. Like Wolfenstein, users downloading the game via shareware didn't get access to the full thing without paying. They could get one episode with nine levels for free, called Knee Deep in the Dead. Two episodes with 18 more levels, called The Shores of Hell and Inferno, could then be purchased by mail order for $40 plus a $5 shipping fee. But for most, it was totally worth it. Players loved the superbly realistic graphics, smooth movement, and the incredible detail as they ran through a maze of hallways up and down stairs and over the corpses of slaughtered demons, they passed by flashing bulbs, switches, and semi-burnt-out overhead lights that add to a dark, futuristic experience unparalleled in the gaming world. It was a quantum leap in the first-person shooter game. Another cool aspect meant that players could customize and add their own levels to the game. The code developed by id programmers was made available, allowing players to create homebrew levels, which sometimes included characters ranging from Barney the Dinosaur to Star Wars. Players swapped their customized levels over computer networks and shared ideas and tips in discussion groups on Usenet. Within four months of its release, a million copies of Doom were in circulation. While PC gamers were spending hours online honing their weapon skills on Doom, the battle between politicians and the gaming industry was ongoing. The December 93 Senate hearings on video game violence adjourned without a resolution. Bickering between Nintendo and Sega executives got in the way of any concrete solutions. So in February 1994, Senators Joe Lieberman and Herb Cole went ahead and introduced the Video Game Ratings Act which would set up a federal commission to regulate the industry. But they said the plan would be withdrawn if game makers could come up with a way to police themselves. 
The threat sent Sega and Nintendo and other game makers scrambling to develop a rating system they could all agree on. Finally, in July 1994, they unveiled a plan for a rating system that would warn consumers of graphic violence or explicit sexual content in console games, while officials from the computer game industry would create a separate system for their products. And they promised rating icons would be on console and PC games before the 1994 Christmas shopping season. While the final details of the rating systems were being hammered out, Long Island-based Acclaim Entertainment wasn't wasting any time cashing in on the success of Mortal Kombat, which by now had become a cultural phenomenon, selling 6 million cartridges at an average price of $50 a pop. Mortal Kombat earned more than most Hollywood movies. So of course, like any good blockbuster, there would be a sequel. Mortal Kombat 2 was released on September 9, 1994, accompanied by another $10 million marketing blitz that included trailers in theaters around the US. The new game did not disappoint. Mortal Kombat 2, which has more characters, is even bloodier and the kill moves are even grislier. And this time, Nintendo bowed to competitive and customer demand by including all of the gore and spine-ripping fatalities. Spokesman Perrin Kaplan admitted Nintendo lost millions of dollars because of the decision to censor the first game. Plus, she said thousands of calls to Nintendo's customer service lines ran two to one against censorship, making it really clear to Nintendo that customers objected to the modifications it made to the original arcade game. Without an official rating system in place yet, both Nintendo and Sega included stickers on the game that essentially warned it was not appropriate for kids under the age of 17. A month later, on October 10, 1994, a sequel to the blockbuster PC game Doom was also released. And this time, Doom 2 Hell on Earth was available in stores for $69.95. There would be no free demo. Despite the cost, in less than a month, 700,000 copies of the new and improved game sold in the US. It had more of everything. More demons, claustrophobic corridors, deadlier weapons like the super shotgun, and yes, more gore. In the wake of Doom's success, it licensed their engine to other companies, and soon there was a big wave of first-person shooter games referred to as Doom clones, including Duke Nukem, Heretic, and Marathon. Plus, id Software added to the first-person shooter genre with the hugely popular Quake series. Ratings on console games started to appear in November 1994, with five different recommendations. From EC for early childhood, to M for mature audience, which is 17+, and AO for adults only. The rating had to be clearly visible on the box cover, and when you flipped it over, there were also brief descriptions on the back about the content of the game, things like animated blood and gore. The ratings and content descriptors, which were determined by three testers at the Entertainment Software Rating Board, were widely applauded as an effective tool for parents. And Lieberman actually said in 2017 that he thinks the game uh, industry came up with a, a rating system that was probably... Um, better than what the Motion Picture Association was doing with movies. However, it wasn't the end of the controversy surrounding violence in video games. The issue was thrown back into the spotlight in 1999. On April 20th of that year, two heavily armed teenagers went on a shooting rampage at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. 
They killed 13 people and injured 21 others before taking their own lives. At the time, it was the worst mass shooting in U.S. history and the first to unfold live on TV. Millions watched as an injured student escaped through a window into the hands of SWAT members. The horrific incident shattered the national psyche and, for many, defined a generation. When it was discovered that the killers were avid Doom players, it also reinvigorated the argument that violent video games were dangerous. In a video recording that was left behind, one of the killers said what they were planning to do at the high school was going to be just like Doom. The same teen had also written in his journal a year before the massacre that the pair planned to set off hundreds of bombs around houses, roads, bridges, and service stations. He wrote, quote, It'll be like the L.A. riots, the Oklahoma bombing, World War II, Vietnam, Duke, and Doom all mixed together. Plus, he had created a modified level of the game, which was uploaded to the school's computer after the shootings, and it immediately drew comparisons to the attack carried out by the teens. Two years later, the families of those killed at Columbine sued 11 video game companies, including id Software. They alleged that a mixture of the addiction to such violent video games and the boys' personalities made for a deadly cocktail that ultimately caused the Columbine shootings. The lawyer representing the families claimed they were trying to change the distortion of such violent material because violent video games turn children into monster killers. But a federal judge dismissed the case on the grounds that video games are not subject to product liability laws like CEOs or business owners are. Meanwhile, following Columbine, a flood of studies emerged in the early 2000s, claiming to have found a connection between violent video games and aggressive behavior. The studies pretty clearly show that playing a video game makes you, playing a violent video game makes you more aggressive. So does playing soccer, right? So, so there's a question of like, is it, is it the, the violence, is it the, the medium itself, or is it just competition, competitiveness, right? It also, to say that, you know, a mass shooter, which are usually white men, um, also play video games, is like saying that the mass shooter also breeds oxygen. The point being, connection or correlation is not the same as causation. As the 90s came to a close, video games rapidly became more mature in their content and audiences. Grand Theft Auto added misogyny and criminality on top of the violence. New first-person shooter games like Call of Duty and Counter-Strike added human enemies and military themes. And nearly every time there is another mass shooting, from Virginia Tech to El Paso, violent video games are used as a scapegoat, with calls to ban them altogether. But for now, they don't appear to be going anywhere. In 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court confirmed that video games have the same protection under the First Amendment as books and movies, and therefore cannot be banned, no matter how gory or violent they become. Thanks for listening to this look back at the rise of violent video games in the 1990s. And thanks to Elise Noor for sharing her knowledge on the subject. Elise is an assistant professor of English at Regis University and has written a book about one of her favorite games, GoldenEye 007. I'll put links and info in the show notes in case you're interested. One of our listeners, Simon, sent me an email to suggest this topic. So thanks also to Simon. If you have an idea for an episode, please let me know. Just send me a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90s Podcast. 
You can also send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 